Oh Lord, once again, uh, we've heard your word and we ask that you'll help it to sink deeply into our hearts and minds. Let, let our, the roots of your word go down deeply and sprout into our lives so that we might bear fruit, that we might be changed, that we might bring life to the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one day uh, a few years ago, I was given a message here on how we as Christians understand this whole problem of suffering. And there was a guy here in, uh, who was attending worship that day who considered himself agnostic. And, and the main reason that he, was a, he considered himself agnostic is because he didn't really, you know, how to address this question of why would a loving God allow so much suffering? And uh, anyway, after the, after the service was over, I overheard him telling a couple of friends, kind of thinking of me, he didn't answer the question. He did not answer the question. And I would say, okay, he's right. If answering the question of suffering means that I was able to completely satisfactorily uh, respond and, and explain it and resolve it for everyone for all time, then no, I did not do that. I've come to believe that Scripture does not give us a full explanation. Now, obviously, we don't like suffering. We don't want to suffer. Uh, we try to avoid suffering whenever we can. We do everything in our power to control things, control our lives, so that suffering is not a part of it. And sometimes that means we fall into superstition. For example, do you ever wonder why people knock on wood or plexiglass or whatever it is? <laughs> sometimes a person will say, yeah, you know, can you believe it? My whole family's healthy right now. Knock on wood. Why? Why do people knock on wood? It's a superstition that believes that by saying that you've had good fortune or good luck, that you are inviting bad luck. So you ward off bad luck by knocking on wood. I, I don't know, maybe people used to uh, knock on wood so that evil spirits wouldn't hear them bragging. And come after them. The way I look at it, well, there's no real harm in knocking on wood, but it's not going to do any good. It's not going to prevent suffering. So I, I don't do it. It's a superstition I don't need in my life. The book of Job uh, is a drama about suffering. The narrator begins by saying that once upon a time, in the land of Oz, there lived a man whose name was Job. He was the most righteous, godly man of his time. He was also wealthy, blessed beyond measure, uh, and, and also had ten beautiful grown children. But one day, Job loses it all. He loses his wealth. All of his ten children die in this freaky storm. And Job is left wondering, why? And then, just when he thinks he's lost everything, he loses his health. He gets infected sores all over his body. It says from the top of his head to the bottoms of his feet. 
And, and back in di- Bible times, if you had unsightly uh, skin disease, people figured it was because you had done something to displease God. I mean, that, at least that was their superstition. Job's wife has only one line in this entire 42-chapter drama, but I give her the award for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. She tells her husband, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Such a supportive spouse, huh? Wow. And then, and then three of Job's friends come to see him. Eliphaz from Taman, Zophar from Naamah, and Bildad from Shua. By the way, Bildad may have been the shortest person in the Bible. Did you know that? Because it says right in the scripture that he's Bildad the Shuhite. <laughs> the only person who might have been smaller is the Philippian jailer who fell asleep on his watch. All right, never mind. <laughs> anyway, anyway, people are starting to leave. Okay, all right, but forget that. Uh, anyway, Job's friends come to comfort him, and from a distance, they see him, and they're shocked by this pathetic sight. There he is sitting on this pile of ashes, oozing sores all over his body, He holds a piece of broken pottery and he uses it to scrape his sores. Ew. I picture him wearing nothing but a a tattered loincloth. He's sickly thin. His body is sooty gray from the ashes. His sores are fiery and pussy. (laughs) I didn't think it was funny, but never mind. Maybe that's a little too dramatic there, but you read it in there. Anyway, Eliphaz, uh, Zophar, and Bildad, they they see Job and they weep out loud. They, They sprinkle dust on their heads as a sign of grief and they sit down with Job in the ash heap for seven days and seven nights. And over that week, no one says a word. What can they say? in the presence of such suffering. After a week of sitting silently with their friends, with his friends, Job gets mad. He's not going down quietly. So he curses the day he was born. If you ever want to read a magnificent tapestry of poetic invectives, go to Job chapter 3, where Job curses the day of his birth. He wants to wipe his birthday off the calendar. Let the day of his birth be obliterated from history. He says, may the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. And he goes on and on. Job curses his birth because he can no longer bear his life. He says, what I feared has come upon me. 
What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quiet, no rest, only turmoil. Job saying, after what I've been through, if I had the choice, I'd choose to never have been born. And then for the next 34 chapters, we get one long speech after another from Job and his friends arguing about why this happened. Now, the friends argue that Job must have done something to deserve this. Why? Because God isn't, he's just, God doesn't hand out calamity to the innocent. So they tell Job, come out with it, man. Confess your sin. Get right with God and you'll recover. But Job refuses to take the blame. I'm innocent. I'm not the, the secret scoundrel sinner that you think I am. My conscience is clear. I mean, he's not claiming to have been 100% perfect, but in the scheme of things, he's been a good man. He's, my devotion to God has always been sincere. And I want to say to you that whatever calamity you face, whatever heartbreaking circumstances you go through, you'll always have friends who try to explain it to you, who are going to tell you why, and they'll be wrong. I know a mom who lost her son to suicide. A friend told her over and over, well, he made his choice, you know. He made his choice, and it made her so mad. The friend had no empathy whatsoever. The mom knew that her son's death was way more complicated than that. It couldn't be explained by simply saying, well, he made his choice. It was a dismissive comment from somebody who really didn't want to deal with it. And when your friend's spouse dies of cancer, please don't tell them that, that God needed another angel in heaven. I mean... Is God running low on angels? Did he lose one somewhere? Some w will be kind to you, and they will recognize your good intentions, and they will receive it as such, but you're going to hurt many and make a lot of others mad. You'll never find in the Bible where it says that, that uh, where somebody dies because God needed another angel. It doesn't even say that humans become angels. And nobody dies because God says, well, I need him in heaven more than you need him here. Now, with my father-in-law, we do not believe that, that God gave him Louis Body's dementia. But when he died last year at age 89, we were thankful that his suffering was over, right? And I have no problem in a situation like that saying it was a mercy and that God took him home. But many, many other times, that's the last thing I want to say. I recently talked with uh, Les Reimers. Uh, some of you know Les and remember him. He was a longtime member here, and he uh, gave me permission to share this with you today. One Sunday, it was in the year 2000, and Les was taking their, their younger daughter, Allison, to her ball game in Sioux City, and his wife, Sally, and their 15-year-old daughter, Jenny, uh, were here at church, Faith Westwood, sitting right where you're sitting. 
and it was Palm Sunday, and so uh, the kids were kind of marching in, and people were waving palms everywhere, and suddenly Jenny slumped over, and their daughter Jenny, uh, Sally did, Sally slumped over, and Jenny knew right away something was seriously wrong with her mom, and a few people, you know, noticed it as well and quickly gathered around to help. Some of you were there that day. I see somebody nodding their head. Yeah, a few of you. The ambulance came. They put her on a stretcher, took her, uh, rushed her to uh, Bergen Mercy. Pastor Jeff Dadisman called uh, Les, and, and then Les and Allison quickly turned around and came back to Omaha. What they didn't know was that she was already gone. At age 44, Sally Reimers died right here in this worship center from a, from a burst aneurysm. And then seven years ago, I had just been the pastor here less than a month when Les's daughter, Jenny, was killed in a car accident when she and her husband were on their way back home to Kansas City. When I talked with Les the other day, he said that more than once, he's thought about his life and compared it to Job. Les said that he believes that, yeah, God allowed this to happen because, you know, it's a lot of things that God allows, but he said God didn't cause it to happen. God didn't want it to happen. And Les refuses to entertain the thought that God was punishing him for something. You remember in the Bible where Jesus wept? That shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept with Mary and Martha, the sisters who had lost their brother who had died. Jesus wept with them. The Bible says, mourn with those who mourn. Mourn with them. Don't tell them, you know, to cheer up because, you know, God needed another angel in heaven. Instead, just be with them, will you? Be with them. Here's another way to say it. A wise friend will share in the pain, not try to explain. I hope you'll write that down. Take it home. Think about it again. Remember it. Let's say it together, shall we? A wise friend will share in the pain, not try to explain. But of course, Job's friends, they feel the need to explain. And they try to. And finally, Job gets fed up with them. So if you would, open your Bible to uh, Job chapter 13. If you're in the Pew Bible, it's on page 510. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we can fix that for you. Uh, we would just say, take that Pew Bible home. It's yours now. And then when you get home and you're trying to figure out where to start, I would suggest that you start with uh, one of the biographies about Jesus called Gospels. Uh, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just pick one of those at the beginning of the New Testament and start reading. And if you have questions, just talk to me or somebody else, and we'll, we'll visit. We'd love to visit with you about it. Anyway, uh, in chapter 13, by now, Job is really mad at his friends. He is P.O.'d. And uh, let's listen to uh, verses 3 and 5. He says, I desire to speak to the Almighty. And to argue my case with God, you, however, he's pointing to his three friends, you, however, smear me with lies 
You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. That the only way you can show that you're wise is if you shut up. Later in the chapter, Job asked God what he's done to deserve this. If you will, skip down to verse 23. Can you go back down to there with me? He says to God, How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Job insists that he's not guilty, so he summons God to court, demanding to know the charges against him. God, since you've already carried out the sentence, how about telling me what I'm guilty of? Now, his friends believe that God is just, and since horrible things have happened to Job, he must have committed some horrible crime and sin against God. And all along, he's been lying about it. Job also believes that God is just, and he figures that if he could only plead his case before God, before the Almighty, that God would see that Job is right. He wants to know, what have I done to deserve this? What Job doesn't know is that the answer is nothing. Nothing. Now, we know it. Because we read the first chapter. Job didn't know that happened. Job didn't do anything to deserve what happened to him. And neither did you. Neither did you. If your daughter dies in a car accident, it's not because God's punishing you for your parenting mistakes. If you have a heart attack, it's not because, well, you haven't been going to church lately. If you get laid off from your job, it's that God's not punishing you because, well, you've been through a divorce. The, bo the book of Job teaches us this. Normally, the bad things that happen to you are not your fault. Job lost his wealth, his livestock, his servants, his children. His friends assumed that it must have been his fault. But it wasn't. Now, yeah, sometimes there is a cause and effect link in life, right? If you live selfishly and you break your promises all the time and you blame all your problems on other people, it's going to have a bad effect on your relationships. The Bible says you reap what you sow. Kind of what goes around comes around or comes around, goes around, whatever that is. Cause and effect. Usually in the Bible, the judgment of God is when God gives us what we want. And God says, okay, here you go. But the bad things that happened to Job, they weren't his fault. And normally the bad things that happen to you and to me they're not our fault. They just happen. A person here at Faith Westwood gave me, the, the, gave me permission to share her story, uh, but I'm going to share it anonymously. When she was a youth, she came down with a disease that kept her in the hospital for six weeks. Uh, physically, she still lives with the repercussions 
of that illness, and she will the rest of her life. And in the back of her mind, for decades, she blamed herself for getting sick. When she was growing up, her mom had continually told her to not bite her fingernails because of the germs. And for decades, she assumed that maybe that's why she got it. That it was her fault, but it wasn't. It's so easy for us to blame ourselves. It's so easy for us to blame ourselves. A storm uh, blows the roof off your house, but your neighbor's home is untouched. <laughs> you think, well, God, what did I do to deserve this? But it's not your fault. God's not punishing you for something. You're, you're diagnosed with lupus. where you're, It's one of those uh, diseases where your body attacks your body. It's not your fault. God's not punishing you for something. One day, a man died a slow, painful death. And people wondered, what had he done to deserve such a fate? Onlookers mocked him and said, he saved himself, but, you know, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He trusts in God, right? Well, let God rescue him if he wants him. Passersby looked at this beaten, bloodied form, and they assumed, they assumed that he must have done something wrong to deserve this. But God wasn't punishing him for anything he had done wrong. It wasn't his fault. And if it happened to Jesus, it can happen to us too. So this morning I'm going to end by giving you a couple of minutes uh, of silence, and you can use this time to think about the events in your life, especially those things that have been painful and, and hard and, and, you know, the, the really big stuff in your life that has really gotten you to thinking. And while you think about those things, I want you to, to repeat over and over in your mind these two thoughts. I don't blame God. I don't blame myself. I don't blame God. I don't blame myself. Let's take a couple minutes.
Oh God, we ask you to save us from the blame game. It's so easy to feel like, well, we got to blame somebody, whether it's ourselves or somebody else or you, Lord. And we know sometimes there is fault. But so many other times we just assign blame because we feel we have to. Lord, help us to, to not feel we have to fix fault on things where no one is at fault, no one's to blame, and especially to ourselves. Lord, there are some of us here today that find that really easy to blame ourselves for everything or to believe that you're punishing us, that we're reaping the consequences when that's not the case at all. And so, Lord, we, uh, we want to hear your truth. We, we need to know that uh, you are a good, good God, our good, good Father that your love is unstoppable, that your favor is upon us. We pray in Jesus' name.